Our first reading is from the Old Testament, Psalm 46, a psalm that exhorts us to cease our rebellion against God and to take refuge in Christ alone from the just judgment of God. Psalm 46. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then we have two readings from the New Testament. The first is from Paul's letters to Christians living in Colossae. And Paul writes about Jesus who brings ultimate reconciliation and everlasting peace through his sacrificial death on the cross. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard. And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The final reading is from the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ to his church. And this passage describes what the new heaven and the new earth will be like when this present age comes to an end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Very often, and rightly so, we uh, appropriate and understand the Christian gospel as its impact on us as individuals. It is good from time to time uh, on a day such as this to remember the global impact of the gospel in relation to the world in which we uh, live. Now, this past summer as a family, we spent a few memorable days in Washington, D.C., visiting every single National Smithsonian Museum, often twice, and the memorials. Some of these memorials are to founding fathers like uh, Jefferson, Lincoln, Presidents, Roosevelt. Some are to great statesmen like Martin Luther King. But the most memorable memorials are of those who gave their lives in war. They are profoundly moving, none more so than the Vietnam Wall, a sunken wall 150 meters long with the names chronologically of all who died. These memorials, like Remembrance Day, remind us of the cost and the casualties of war. And a hundred years since the Great War, the First World War, we still remember. And I quoted earlier the then Prime Minister, uh, Lloyd George, words, and they were genuine words. They are the words of every politician. They are the words that express the sentiments of all of our hearts at the end of a conflict. We hope we may say that thus this fateful morning came an end to all wars. But they are never true. It is our hope, but humanly speaking, we have no hope it will ever be true. It seems there is no hope for humanity. When I was prepping the sermon this week, I was thinking people might hear this as a kind of Christian slide to Jesus, who is the answer to all things. There is no hope for humanity, though. And it's striking if you watch the service of remembrance last night, the British Legion Festival of Remembrance. I think it was one of the best that I have seen. The Christian bit at the end of it was excellent. Except, except, the prayers for peace ring hollow because they will never be answered. They never have been. Well, peace is elusive as ever. One of the things your minister likes to do is uh, read think tank publications. Any of you like to do that? No. I think it's good to get a handle on what is influencing global policy. Um, The Institute of Economics and Peace, or the IEP, you may have heard of that, is the world's leading think tank dedicated to developing metrics or measures to analyze conflict and peace in the world. And every year, the IEP produces a global peace index, and it's a very carefully researched uh, index. And the 2018 index shows that the world is less peaceful today than at any point in the last decade. Only 11 countries on the planet are not directly involved in conflicts of some form. And the IEP has recently developed a vision of humanity 
picked up by governments around the world. Let me quote from it. We aim to create a paradigm shift in the way the world thinks about peace. We use data-driven research to show that peace is a positive, tangible, and achievable measure of human well-being and development. And the work of the IEP is excellent. As a think tank, it is rightly used by governments around the world as the leading resource for shaping domestic and foreign policy when it comes to conflict. It is rightly used by organizations such as NATO, the UN, and UNICEF, who are rightly committed to global peace. And they deserve our efforts and our prayers and our backing. But their task is impossible. History would indicate that it is impossible. Human progress in the 20th and the first quarter of the 21st centuries are times of extraordinary progress. They have not brought peace. Is there any hope for lasting peace and real reconciliation? The IEP and governments develop visions for humanity, a paradigm shift in the way the world thinks about peace. But what of God? What is the creator God's vision for humanity? And it is striking, and it has struck me this week, that when you face up to the reality of the world in which we live, when you allow yourself time to investigate beyond the massive statistics to the reality of individuals, for example, 599 pupils from George Watson's, either pupils who were at school or former pupils died in the First World War, 599 from one school. When you face up to these things, you face up to the horror of the world in which we live and the desperate need for a solution. What is the Creator God's vision for humanity? Can God say with credibility, I hope we may say that thus this fateful morning came an end to all wars? Now that is the promise that God makes. Just look at the words of Psalm 46 again. And rest assured this morning, we're not going to glibly accept them. We're going to interrogate them to see if they are true. God makes the promise, verse 1, He is our strength and our refuge, an ever-present help in trouble. Is He? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. That's just turmoil on the earth. Verse 8, come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Now, that's the promise. God says... I make war cease. That's what he says to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He promises the end of war, the destruction of the weapons of war, the exaltation of himself among the nations 
and the exaltation of his name and fame in all of the earth. That is his promise. But it is still to be fulfilled. Now, what makes God's promise? What makes God's promise that wars will cease to the ends of the earth? What makes God's promise that he will destroy all the weapons of evil and war? What makes God's promise that he will be exalted as the ruler of the nations, that his fame and renown will be known throughout the earth? What right is God to say, be still and know that I am God? Well, one, that he is God, the Almighty. Every politician, every global leader, whom we must pray for with all our hearts and energies day in, day out, for their job is impossible in this earth, comes and goes. And God is the Colossus who stands and lives over time in history. What makes God's promise different is that the Lord Almighty makes the promise. But more than that, what makes God's promise different that he will bring war and conflict to an end is that he identifies and deals with the real problem which is human sin. Now the problem is in humanity, in the human heart whether it is at a micro level the day-to-day of ordinary life or at a macro level the relationship between nations. As human beings, there is something fundamentally wrong with us that means we cannot get on with our fellow humanity. And that rises up to varying degrees every day in all of our lives. And at times in history, human beings seek and claim and own power that is only the power that belongs to God. Wars are reported by statistics But behind the statistics are human lives and human casualties and real people. Wars start for political reasons. History books record the reasons the wars start. But behind the start of every war there are people. Wars begin because people and nations do not value the dignity of their fellow humanity. Wars begin because people and nations are broken in their relationships with their fellow humanity. If you read the testimonies of those from the Allied sides at the end of both the great wars, not those who looked on, but those who fought the wars, their testimonies are that war achieves nothing. Freedom, perhaps. But there is a knowledge in the heart of the human heart that speaking of peace and speaking of wars that will end all wars is futile. Now let me be clear here in case you misunderstand what I'm saying. There are many wars in history and in the world today where individuals, nations or groups start wars because of a desire for personal or national supremacy or for some misguided cause or agenda And people are caught up without being culpable in these wars. Whether in defense or in response or as civilian casualties. War in itself, though, is never just. 
War, like death, was not part of God's creation. Going to war in a fallen world can be just. To stand against tyranny and terror, to defend the defenseless. But the root cause of war and conflict in the first place is the fact that humanity is not reconciled to their fellow humanity. And the root cause of that is sin in the human heart. But there is something deeper still and more fundamental. I wish they'd let me preach the sermon at BBC One last night. You know, I I don't know what you made of that. My heart increasingly is just... You long for, for these clergy to take that next step, just a little step. To say that peace is only found when the heart is fixed. And it took the, the gospel choir last night from the old Kent Road in London on the telly to sing as Christians of amazing grace. There is something deeper still than the broken relationship between humanity and their fellow humanity. And that is the broken relationship between humanity and God. That is the root cause of the broken relationship between us, our broken relationship with with God. Now, God afforded to humanity a special privileged place in creation. Just think of what God did. He created humanity in his image to rule over this earth. Hundred and twenty six million people in the twentieth century slaughtered in war. God created humanity with the dignity, the rational, the moral, the spiritual ability to love one another, to rule responsibly under Him. And because humanity has rejected God's rule. That is the reason the world in which we live is disordered and broken, and the relationship between human beings disordered and broken, and that's the problem that needs sorting. Human sin, humanity's rejection of God that leads to a broken relationship with God and the broken relationship with our fellow humanity. The real problem cannot be solved by a paradigm shift in the way we think about war. It needs a far more radical solution. The real problem cannot be solved with advances in learning or technology. Because the problem is the human heart. The real problem cannot even be solved, even, by experiencing or remembering those who have experienced the terrible effects of war. Were I to read the citations of the hundreds of 16, 17, and 18-year-olds in this city who gave their lives in the First World War, surely that is enough if everybody in the globe heard them, to stop war forever. Of course, it's not. So last night, today, the nation pauses and is confronted with the shock of its human heart 
and all that is offered at best is to pray for peace and to build a better world. And that, of course, is precisely what Jesus achieved when he died on the cross. I mean, we think when Jesus died on the cross, he looked at my sin and Sam's sin and your sin and all of our sin, and he took that sin, and he did do that. But Jesus faced up to the, 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 the blood spilt on the battlefields of the Somme. That's what he sees, and that's what he that's what he, he, he sees in some ways in the, the cup that he drinks. All death and destruction. Listen again to the words of the second reading. The Son, Jesus, is the image of God. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And then these words, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cost of war is blood. It took Jesus' blood shed to fight and win the war against human sin and rebellion the perfect, sinless, righteous life given in the place of humanity, our sin, and the just judgment of God. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is the price that was paid to save humanity. And his forgiveness is offered to all who will turn to him with repentant hearts and trust in him for their forgiveness. And these verses in Colossians are, are followed by Paul's description of the Christian. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is the description of every real Christian once alienated from God because of sin, but now reconciled to God because our sin has been forgiven. Once alienated, now reconciled. And when someone becomes a Christian, a fundamental change takes place in their inner being, their person. The living spirit of Jesus comes to dwell in them, and they are reconciled to God and to their fellow humanity. And there is real peace, objective, factual peace, not a feeling, peace, because there is real reconciliation. You cannot have a peace and a reconciliation commission. You've got to have a reconciliation before there is a peace commission. You need to be reconciled to God before there is the possibility of peace at an individual level and at a global level between uh, humanity. Peace means the end of hostilities. 
So what makes God's promise of peace different? He makes it. What makes God's promise of peace different? It addresses the fundamental problem of the human heart. What is the price of peace? The blood shed of Jesus. Freely offered forgiveness to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. Now, how do we know that the peace that God offers is any different? Well, the proof is that Jesus rose from the dead. The very best dignity afforded to soldiers in the Great War was that their comrades continued to serve for up to six months, exhuming their bodies, getting close enough to them to identify who they were, bringing them to a proper grave and a burial, allowing their families to grieve. One man was singled out, the unknown soldier, who was taken as a symbol of respect and buried in a service with the king in Westminster Abbey. The greatest dignity afforded to those who gave their lives was the dignity of burial. The greater dignity afforded to the one who gave his life to deal with the problem of the human heart was resurrection from the dead. Nobody who has died in conflict has been resurrected from the dead. That's what makes war so awful. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And the proof is there for us to read an eyewitness historical accounts in our Bibles. Historical eyewitness accounts like those that describe the First World War. Testimony, evidence from those who were there and saw and experienced what happened. I'll say this in the second service. I'll say it now. Have you read one of the gospel accounts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are no different in terms of the reliability of them from a history of the First World War or a history of the Second World War. You know, there were those who claimed that some of the terrible aspects of the war, like the Holocaust, didn't happen. I think the most memorable museum visit we had in the summer was to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and we were shown around by a child who had been interred in Auschwitz. And the thing that distressed him as he spoke to us most of all was the, was the, the, the scholarship, the that tries to deny that the Holocaust happened or the forgetfulness. Why is it then that the vast majority of humanity denies that Jesus died and rose from the dead? in the face of the empirical evidence which is so overwhelming. 
Why would humanity rather go to war than go to Jesus? Well, we'll get to ask him one day. Now, there is one question that remains, and it is a massive question. War has not ceased. The promise that the psalm makes has not been kept yet. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. It hasn't happened yet, and I know you know the answer why. And I don't doubt that that promise will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again and the opportunity for responding to the real problem in the human heart is dealt with. But do you not feel the yearning for that promise to be fulfilled? Since Jesus lived, died, and was raised, there have been 20 centuries of bloody wars. The 20th century, the bloodiest of the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. I will be future, exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The promise of a world where there is no war is in the future, still in the future, where Jesus returns. I always think when I explain that, that somebody who is not a Christian is going to say, well, that's just pie in the sky. It is too good to be true. Fair enough. Look at the evidence. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if it is pie in the sky and too good to be true, well, just buckle down and see out your three score years and ten in this broken, disordered, sin-sick world where you and I will die of some horrible disease and medicine will never break the mortality rate that still runs at 100%. And people will give their lives needlessly all over the world. And countries like Syria will be blasted to bits because of human hearts that aren't right. If that's the alternative, I want to charge you to go out and live facing it. Don't deny it by escapism in some way. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. This is when Jesus returns in the first heaven and the first earth and passed away. You know, we, we often say that the, that the beauty of Scotland like Perthshire, which is the best bit of Scotland, apart from the house of Brewer, it's just unfortunate. It's wonderful and beautiful, isn't it? Oh, and it will be just extraordinary when that's resurrected. It will be, what about the battlefields though? What about the song? What about the bits that are left as they were with the wire and the destruction? What about Syria resurrected? What about the Middle East? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And between now and that day is the opportunity for people to turn to Jesus for their salvation. Every single day we live in the disordered, broken world. There is reason enough to cry out to God for salvation. 
a solution to the human plight that is beyond our capability as humanity. And all over the planet, all over this city, there are clergymen who like me. I'm a clergyman. Do you know that? who say that God saves all humanity. And I wish that were the case. I wish that he would just come back and it would all be fine. But that's not what Jesus says. He needs us as humanity to surrender to him. How do you hear these words in the psalm as we finish? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Listen to this description by one of the Bible commentators. That is not an invitation to quiet meditation. It is rather the silence of awestruck surrender. That apart from Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no hope for humanity. Now, many of us know that. So what do we do with it? Number one, we, well, we grasp every opportunity that we possibly can to tell people the truth. And we stop faffing around and saying that evangelism is hard because people are going to hell. Now that's maybe, you're going to criticize me for saying that, some of you. You're going to text me, aren't you? And of course, the bloodshed on the psalm was bad enough, but eternal damnation is harder and worse. So we need to tell people the truth. And let's not pat ourselves on the back that we're planting a church. Let's plant another one in a few years. Let's pray that God will liberate us to tell people about Jesus. Let's pray that God will liberate your minister to stop coming up with his standard first line, hoping that it will raise a question I'm a minister, I'm a Christian. who by God's grace and mercy heart has been made new in Christ. So let's remember well and let's remember what war reminds us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that uh, you would uh, soften the hard words or harsh words if I have spoken them. But goodness me, what the plight of humanity should do to us in our souls and in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to stop sitting at the top of a cliff and making daisy chains while people plunge off it into the abyss of eternal judgment. Help us to face the reality of the world in which we live, the massive amount of bloodshed on the planet and surely facing it causes us to turn we pray Lord for churches across the land this morning as poignancy creates opportunity we pray that people speaking would grasp the real truth that is Jesus Christ
or any motivation to go and tell the gospel is not able to be manufactured by our own efforts and energies. It is only the Holy Spirit of Jesus living in us who shed tears and who gave his life for the sake of humanity. Only that Spirit living in us moves us to go and tell people the real answer, the only answer to the predicament of humanity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.